Lorinda, you know, uh, we had a little problem, a little issue going on around our creek where our driveway comes by and then comes up to our house. Little pesky beavers decided that they were going to make that part of the creek their playground, and so they were putting up dams and they were doing all kinds of crazy stuff down there and causing a real problem for all of our neighbors because it started to flood the road and things like that. And so in our little uh, homeowners association, we got together and we asked one of the homeowners if he wouldn't mind dealing with those pesky little animals down there and eliminating a few of them so that we didn't have a road problem. And he said he would. And and not long after that, um, Lorinda and I were taking Chester for a walk and we went down the hill by the creek and we were heading out towards Baldwin Creek Road and all of a sudden there was this stench that just overpowered us and of course it was a dead beaver and i don't know if you know anything about dogs but if they can find something really stinky they'll roll in it for about six hours and they think that they're putting on some kind of perfume and not only that but they like to bring that stinky stuff home with them and so chester was over trying to bring this carcass of a beaver back up to the house and i convinced him that wasn't a good idea you know, to leave it there. And so we went home. A couple days later, when I came home from work and I got out of the truck and I was walking up the sidewalk, all of a sudden, the smell of death washed over me. And I kind of took a quick look around and I was looking and I could not find whatever it was that was dead. And so I went into the house and we had supper and then Lorinda and I went outside to enjoy the, the warm sunshine in the evening. And there it was again, that stinky death smell. And so Lorinda finally was repulsed enough to where she went in the house, and I said, I'll find it. And sure enough, I go around to the back, and there's Chester with his part of the beaver that he brought home with him that he was now making a little chew, chewy toy snack out of. So I grabbed some gloves and a plastic bag, scooped up the yuck, put it in a bag, threw it in the back of my truck to dispose of later. This little process went on for more than a week. I'd get home, I'd smell the smell, I'd find the rotten carcass, bag it up, dispose of it. And, and it was just nauseating. I mean, I don't know if you've been around dead beaver or not, but it is absolutely wretched. So we got rid of the whole thing, finally kind of all the way gone. Nowhere, to, death no more around my house. And um, one evening, I let Chester into his little mudroom. And as I'm sitting in the family room directly across from it, all of a sudden, the pugnant smell of death, dead beaver, was washing over me. And I thought to myself, that little rascal found a little piece of fur or something and brought it in the house with him. So I went into where he was, and I scoured the room and couldn't find anything. And so I finally grabbed him by the face and said, where did you put it? And he looked up at me, and at that moment, his breath hit me. Yeah, I just about lost my lunch. It was absolutely disgusting. And so I said, all right, that's it. You're out. And so I poked him back outside. And I'm sitting there, and I must have been watching TV or something, and I just kind of went like this. And then I looked back over at the room, and I went like, man, that smell just keeps washing in here might be in his bedding or something. And I'm sitting there. And, and all of a sudden, it hit me. And I went like this. Oh, the stink that he had eaten was now coming out through the coat of his fur. 
and the oils of that stinky beaver were now all over my hand. Many washings and a lot of Lorinda's stinky little hand stuff that she puts on that smells good, better than dead beaver, was the real problem. You know, it's just amazing how much death really stinks. I I don't know how many of you have had something dead around your house, uh, like a dead mouse stuck in the wall or something like that, you know, but it, it is absolutely revolting. But you know, there's one death that doesn't stink. One death that does not stink. And it, 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 as much as we think about death being a really horrible smell to it, on the spiritual side of things, there is a death that doesn't smell. Matter of fact, Paul put it this way in Second Corinthians. He said, Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and by those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a dreadful smell of death and doom. But to those who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. You get that? When, when we step into a relationship with Christ, there is an aroma about us, spiritually speaking, that is given off to other people. You don't know it, but it is. There is this aroma that comes from us, and it is either life-giving perfume or it smells like death. And it all depends on the perspective of the person with whom you are spending time with. If they're seeking God, they're smelling life in you. If they hate God, they smell death and they don't like you. So I, I brought that all together because as we go into the next verses we're studying in Colossians chapter 2, there's this whole idea of death that I want us to take a look at. And, and it's um, rather intriguing. So if you have your Bibles... Turn to Colossians 2, and we're going to start looking at verse 11. Now, I don't know if you remember last week when John was preaching, he says, I can't wait to hear what Ken has to say next week about the passages he's preaching on. And I couldn't remember, because I was sitting here paying attention to him, I couldn't remember what the passages were that I was going to be preaching on until I looked at it um, uh, late last week. And all of a sudden, I realized it was on circumcision. No wonder he didn't want to talk about it. Thanks, John. I I gave him the opportunity to preach on those, and he passed. Now, let me read the verses, and then we'll go into it. I'm just going um, verse 11 and 12. In him, that is Christ, you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. Now, you may be asking yourself the question, why in the world would Paul bring up circumcision in the middle of this book of Colossians? He's been dealing with false teachers that have been infiltrating into the church and giving false doctrine and false hope on things that that don't amount to a hill of beans. And now what he's dealing with is he's dealing with the Judaizers 
the people who have come out of Judaism and stepped into the church and said, Jesus is good, but you need to be circumcised if you really want to be spiritual. And so Paul's going like, whoa, whoa, hold the phone. That's not the deal here at all. And so Paul picks up the idea of circumcision, and he wants to bring it to the place where we understand it. And, and so let me help you understand that, you know, I just in case there's somebody here that doesn't know what it is, I'm not going to go into great detail about it, but it is simply that the, there's the cutting off of a small amount of flesh on the male sexual organ. And in the Old Testament, if you were a, a Jew, you would take your son to the rabbi eight days after he had been born, and the rabbi would perform this simple little operation and remove the flesh and get rid of it. And the reason they did that is because that was the outward symbolism or sign of a covenant that God made with all of Israel, setting them aside to be specifically his people. They were his people, and, and he wanted to set them aside. And so here is the mark on the men. That's what it was for. And, and so as we come now to this aspect, and I want you to also know this, that Jesus was circumcised. John the Baptist was circumcised. The 12 disciples were circumcised. Paul was circumcised. They were all good Jews, and they understood what it was all about. But if you read this, you might get the idea that this circumcision that Paul's talking about, because he's talking about the circumcision of Christ, that it was the circumcision of Jesus as a baby, because that's how you could almost read that. But that's not what Paul's talking about, because he says that this circumcision took place without human hands. There was no human involved in it. And so the circumcision that he's talking about is when Christ went to the cross, his body was circumcised, torn apart, pulled off, so that... So that we didn't have to deal with anything. It was removed. It was a spiritual circumcision. I'm going to get that word mixed up. His circumcision was on the cross, and it involved not the stripping away a small piece of flesh, but the violent removal of his entire body in death. It's a removal. Complete removal, nothing left. Jesus' life on the cross was completely removed. His flesh was, was just beaten. It was torn apart. He was nailed on the cross. And so there's this hugely strong connection between the body, uh, 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 the bodily death of Jesus, and our spiritual life. Because what are we called? We're called the body of Christ. In 1 Corinthians, Paul talks about the, all the spiritual gifts that are within the body of Christ so that it makes up the body because we don't have all of the gifts one person. And so we all need all the gifts together to come together to make the full body. And so as we take a look at this in, in Romans 6, 6 through 7, this is what Paul says. He, he says, for um, we know that our old self with, was crucified. You could put the word in there, circumcised. With him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died 
has been set free from sin. That, that's the whole purpose when, when Christ went to the cross to be, have his body absolutely torn away and we are crucified with him so that our flesh, our sinful flesh, would be torn away. So the pac- practical implications are immense. When Christ's body was circumcised from him in his death on the cross, we were circumcised. We died. Since we died with him, we do not have to serve sin any longer. If you still find that you are a slave to your old sinful nature, and you still find yourself giving into old habits, it may be that you have not fully stepped into the trusting reality that Jesus has set you free by what he did on the cross for you. The old self, the person that we were before conversion, before we came to faith in Christ, was crucified with Christ on the cross when we said yes to Jesus. The body of sin, formerly a vehicle for sin, has now been rendered inoperative. It doesn't have to function anymore. We don't have to put gas in the gas tank. Through the death of our old self, we are free to live a life that is full instead of enslaved. Let me carry on with this idea because of us being the body. Because if if Jesus' body was killed on the cross and we become the body of Christ, then we have been crucified on the cross with him, our old self. In Ephesians 5.23, here's what, what Paul says. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body. Or you go to Ephesians 4. He gave apostles and the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. So there's a huge connection between us as the body of Christ and what happened to Jesus on the cross. There was this this radical removal of the life of Jesus, and it wasn't an accident, and it wasn't something that God didn't see coming. Matter of fact, God ordained that it should happen. He set it in motion and in place so that our lives would be radically transformed by a radical removal of our old self. Surgical precision. We know that Jesus' body, his physical body, was brutalized for us. But what we need to let settle into our hearts is that we came, when we came to faith, our sinful nature was crucified with Christ's on the cross. We need to have our sinful nature circumcised, cut off, removed forever. But it isn't just that process of bringing something to death that's important. I mean, if all it was is that our old self was dead, then we'd be kind of walking around going like, so now who I was is no longer. So who am I? What happens now? 
Well, thank goodness Paul goes on. Let me read that verse, verses again, verses 11 and 12. In him you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of flesh, but the circumcision of, by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the power of the working of God who raised him from the dead. You know what you call that, being raised from the dead? Resurrected. Brought back to life. There were a few people in the Bible that had been resurrected and brought back to life. But the difference between their resurrection and Jesus' resurrection is that their resurrection didn't last. They died again. When Jesus was resurrected, he lives forever. And so that's the resurrection that we're talking about. And so if we are, which we are, the body of Christ, then we have been buried with him and we have been raised to new life with him. We experience the resurrection now. We often think of the resurrection as something that's going to happen in the future. That when we die, our bodies are going to go in the grave. And when Jesus comes back at his second advent, second coming, that at that moment when, he, he did, when the father tells him, hey, son, it's time, go get the kids, bring them home, that at that moment then the dead in Christ will arise and we will go to be with our father in heaven. And all things will be set right. All the wrongs will be turned right. The, the righteousness of Christ will reign supreme over the entire universe. And that's what we think of as being the resurrection. That is the future resurrection. But what Paul is saying here is, is that, that we have been buried with him in baptism. Now, how many, I'm, I want a show of hands, how many people have been, um, let's see, how would I say it, immersed in baptism? You've gone under the water. Raise your hand up. All right, some of you that haven't raised your hand up, come see me. I'm going to baptize you. We got a pretty big sink in there. If you prefer sprinkling, we'll put you through the automatic washing machine. All right, so when you were baptized, all of you that raised your hand and you went in the water, when you went down into the water, you were buried with Christ. That's the symbolism of it. Is it your life, your old sinful life, the way you used to be, the person who you used to be, and lived in sin, you were buried under the water as Jesus was buried under the earth. Good news, we don't leave you under the water. We pull you out of the water. And when you come out of that water, the symbolism and the reality in the spiritual realm is, is that you have been resurrected, just like Jesus was, to new life. You have been buried, you've been resurrected to new life. So right now, because of Jesus' resurrection, you live a new life of resurrection now. That's got to be good news for us. It, 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 you know, the, the thing that is just really interesting is, is that all of this process of this burial and resurrection in the baptism, even though we don't see it, it has huge spiritual implications because it's by the empowering and, and the work of the Holy Spirit in the baptizing that we are identified with Christ through that. So the Holy Spirit identifies us with Jesus after that. 
And, and that's where we go. Here's, here's the interesting, because, you know, we just had Christmas, and Easter is coming. The great Easter truth is not that we are to live newly after death. That is not the great truth. But that we are to be new here, to live nobly like Jesus now. That's what the resurrection for us means now, to have a a life that we live nobly in the character and the person of Jesus Christ. In Romans 6, verses 10 and 11, Paul said this, For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ. Are you alive in God? It's in Christ. Just in case you didn't get it, this message, it's all about Jesus. All right? And that's where we go. The practical application for us in this is that we are to daily reckon um, to our account that we have died with Christ, that we were buried with Him, that we were resurrected with Him. This ought to come into our minds again and again and again. It ought to dominate our thoughts every day that I have died to self and I live a resurrected life right now in Christ so that I can live a noble life of harmony, of peace, of goodwill, of, 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 of being the man or the woman that God is trying to form me into. It's a transformation process. It doesn't happen immediately overnight. It is a process that we go through for the rest of our lives because we are being what the Bible would call sanctified. That means growing in holiness every day. But if we forget where we came from, we're apt to go back where we were. We're apt to go back to that old dead carcass of self. We're apt to go back to that vehicle and try and put gas in it to drive it around again and live a life that does not reflect the the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's that's the part about it. God God says, you want to go back to that? You really want to live in that stench? God says, I'm not going to stop you. God's a perfect gentleman. He will never go where he's not invited. And if you don't invite him into every aspect of your day, he's not going to go with you. you. You wonder why your days get all messed up. You wonder why your life is just kind of foggy and there's no direction and there's no clarity. It's because we haven't come to our Father and said, today I need your guidance, I need your help, I need your direction. Every day that's got to be the process. Because if you don't, you get really messed up. Even though you're a Christ follower, you can still get messed up in your thoughts. That's why Paul's writing this letter to the, to the Christ followers in Colossae. So that they wouldn't get all messed up. Let's move on. Verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses or sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven all our trespasses. In other words, you were dead because of your sins. 
And because of your sinful nature, which had not yet been cut away, then God made you alive with Christ, and he forgave all of your sins. The word dead is a description of the spiritual state of every human being who is apart from Christ. Before anybody ever comes to Christ, they are spiritually dead. You were spiritually dead. I was spiritually dead. That's not a good place to be in. It describes the state in which every person, the spiritual condition of every person on this planet who does not come to know God. And the problem with being spiritually dead is that a spiritually dead person can pick this book up and start reading it, and there are a lot of things that are, they're not going to be able to understand because this is a spiritual book written by our spiritual Heavenly Father. And the only way to really understand what He has for us is for us to be spiritually alive so that it makes sense for to us. A lot of people miss out a lot of things in the Bible because they are spiritually dead. They can't understand the truth. It's far beyond their comprehension. They don't get it. And that's why you hear people saying that they've picked up the Bible and they've read it and it's just a bunch of mythology to them. It's just a bunch of hocus-pocus nonsense. That's because they're spiritually dead and it doesn't make any sense to their natural mind. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2. The natural per person does not accept the things of the Spirit, for they are foolish or folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Ah, let me ask you the question. Do you have a hard time understanding what the Bible's saying to you? Do you read a passage and you just go like, that's crazy. That's stupid. That's silliness. You might want to just think about your relationship with God. If you're reading something, even the elementary truths of the Bible, and they're not clicking at least a little bit in your life, that to me would be a red flag. And there are things that we need to come to grips with. We need to go like, why am I having such a hard time understanding this? Why is it it doesn't make sense to me? Now, sometimes what we need to do, not just sometimes, probably all the time, is the best way to understand the intent of a letter is to ask the author, what did you mean when you said this? Because it, I, I'm not following it very well. I think I get it, but can you help me understand what that really means? So my little tidbit of, helpful information this morning is when you go to read God's love letter to you, ask him, what is it that you want me to get out of this? What do you want me to under help me to understand where I'm a little bit slow in understanding? And you know what? He loves those kinds of requests and he'll answer them every time. You know, um, as I've gone out to visit Leela and Cody over... Leela's been there for 10 years in California now. Um, and when I go out and I visit Leela, I, sometimes I probably embarrass her because I'm with her girlfriends and some of the guy friends that they hang around. And, and I would ask them, 
questions about spiritual things that come out of the Bible. Hey, when the Bible says this, what do you think it means? I don't know. Really, you don't know? Is it that you don't know or you haven't thought about it or you don't want to think about it? What is it? And I press in a little bit on them to find out. And, and I, I heard this answer more than one time. I don't like thinking about those things because it makes my head hurt. Really? Well, Jesus wants you to get a headache to think about those things because they're life and death for your spirit. Your spirit either grows or it dies. There's no middle ground. You, 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 anything that's alive is growing. Anything that's dead is, you know, that's not growing is dead. There's, there's no evidence of life. And so God wants us to have that evidence of life in our lives. All of us who are believers here today, we were all once dead. But through Christ, His divine surgery was performed on us. We were dead, blind, and empty. Now, because of our new relationship with Jesus, we have life, light, and fullness. In other words, we are complete in Jesus. Let's go on to verses 14 and 15. <clears throat> I'm going to add a little bit of 13 to it. Makes help make a little more sense. God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Now, when, when it talks about canceling our record of debt, that record of debt is called guilt. One of, one of the results of Jesus dying on the cross is that we're released from the guilt of sin. We don't have to walk around under the burden of guilt anymore. And that guilt is written like a code. Or let me put it to you this way. It's an IOU signed by your own hand. And, and it's, it's the IOU that you're signing by your own hand is that you're making a promise to obey God. Now let me, let me help you understand this. By lack of obedience, we announce our guilt. The Jews had a contract or a covenant to obey God through the law of Moses. We know it as the Ten Commandments, and there's a lot more to it. That's just kind of cliff notes, the Ten Commandments. They had that written down for them, and that's what they were trying to obey. The rest of us have countersigned through our conscience to keep the moral law as we understand it. Some of the moral law. We're not to commit adultery. We're not to steal. We're not to lie. That's, that's the moral code that we're trying to keep. But the problem in all of this is that the, the burden of guilt is immense. And the more we sin, the more the de decrees come against us and oppose us. Christ took the IOUs, our IOUs, yours and mine, the ones that we've written out, condemning ourselves by our own guilt. He took those IOUs and he nailed them to the cross above his head and then completely forgave 
all of us for our IOUs. Debt paid in full. Now, a guy, an author by the name of J.B. Phillips, a really smart guy, he says it this way. He has forgiven you all your sins. Christ utterly wiped out the damning evidence of broken laws and commands which always hung over our heads and has completely annulled it by nailing it over his head on the cross. That's what he did for us. All right, you guys need to look a little more happy about that. I mean, it's, this is good news. This is the gospel. This is good news. We should be going like, I know, you know, a lot of you guys are still in your Baptist ways and you're inside you're going, woo That's okay. I get it. Nothing crazy. I want to tell you about Martin Luther. Not Martin Luther King Jr., but Martin Luther, the great reformer. Here's what he wrote after one night where he had a dream in which he was visited at night by Satan who brought to him a record of his own Life written with his own hand. The tempter said to him, Is it true? Did you write it? The poor terrified Luther had to confess that it was all true. Scroll after scroll was unrolled and the same confession was wrung out of him again and again. At length, the evil one prepared to take his departure having brought Luther down to the lowest depths of hopeless misery. Suddenly, the former reformer turned to the tempter and said, It's true, every word of it. But right across it all, the blood of Jesus, God's Son, cleanses me from all my sin. We cannot deny the things that we have done. But what we do have is we have an advocate who has already gone and paid our debt for us in full. And it, none of it will ever be held against us again. Nothing we have ever done in the past is God going to bring up and hold you accountable to. Nothing that you're doing right now will God hold over your head and say, you have to pay for this. And no sin that you will ever commit in the future will God ever bring back and say, you need to be judged for this. Because when we're under the umbrella of Christ's love, all of our sin is forgiven. Past, present, future. That's the hope we have. That's the joy we have in our lives. That's why you look so happy this morning. In the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, God the Father achieved great victory over evil powers of this world. That's why it says up here, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. What Satan thought was going to be his greatest victory by killing Jesus on the cross became his eternal damnation. It put him... In the place of shame. He thought he was going to shame God and Jesus. But it flipped around on him. He never saw it coming. And he went like. Oh boy didn't see that coming. Too late. 
Because now he lives in the shame of what Jesus did for us, and we live in, in the light of the glory of the gospel. There is, where there is light shown, there is no darkness. And where the light of Jesus comes, there is no shame, there is no guilt. We're free. We're free to be the people that Jesus told us we should be. Because what happened is we no longer fear the outcome of the battle with evil because Christ has conquered. And if Christ has conquered and we have died on the cross to our sins, then we have conquered and we will conquer. So here's, here's where we go with all this. In view of all of this and what Christ has done for us and where we have come from where we are now because we have been buried and we've been raised to new life in Christ, why would we look to anyone else but Christ for fullness? Cultivate all the human relationships you can because when you die, you want as many people at your funeral as you can get. But do not look for ultimate fulfillment in them because they will disappoint you. It's true. In marriage, we disappoint each other. Ask my wife. She's got a pretty long list of disappointments. But you know what the great news is? She's the daughter of Jesus. So guess what she does with that list? She burns it. And she gives me a new list, a new, a new try all the time. She's the most gracious woman I know. Because I'm about the biggest jerk I know. And yet she loves me, not because of who I am, but because of who Christ is in her. We love our children. Have they caused us some heartache over the years? Yep. Do they cause us a little bit of angst now? Yep. Do we get mad at them? Eh, yep. Do we love them? Absolutely. Why? Not because we gave birth to them. Not because they're flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. But because of the love that Jesus has put in my heart to be able to love beyond someone's faults and sins. But if we keep looking for our children, our spouse, our friends to bring fulfillment in our lives, we will be disappointed. Also, energetically, Pursue your career, but don't imagine that you'll find a rescinding fulfillment in it. Because God told us we are to work by the sweat of our brow to provide for our families. But don't make that job your God. Because what God is, is he's a jealous God. And what God did throughout all of the Old Testament when his people would worship false idols, he would destroy the idol. So be careful. Don't make an idol out of your career because God loves you so much, he would destroy that idol to get you to love him deeper. Now let me go back to where I started because there are some aromas of death that really stink like a dead beaver. People who are dead in their sins, they don't know how badly their life stinks. Some of them might realize it. Some of them might realize that their life stinks because they have never submitted 
their knee to the lordship of Jesus. And so their life stinks. And they don't know what to do about it. But the death of Jesus has a fragrance that is different. It's an aroma that is pleasing in the throne room of God. Let me take you back to 2 Corinthians where we started. Our lives are a Christ-like fragrance rising up to God. You smell it? Right here in this room? Right now in the throne room of God, there is an aroma that is flowing out of this. You can't see it, and you probably can't even smell it. But what God is getting from us today as we've come and we worship and we listen and we do, there's this fragrant aroma that lifts out of here into the throne room of God, and it is a pleasing smell to God. He loves to smell it. But that's not the only place it takes hold, like like the passage says. But this fragrance is perceived differently by those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To those who are perishing, we are a deadful smell of death and doom. So I'm telling you, when you bump into people who are not Christ followers, people who do not love Jesus, and they have a certain amount of animosity already against you, and you don't know what you've done to incur such hatred from them, I'm going to tell you that it's the aroma of Jesus they don't like. If you are dead in your sins like they are, they want you to smell like them. They want you to be like them. But you bring the aroma of Christ's righteousness to your life because Jesus was circumcised on the cross and therefore he circumcised our old life away from us and raised us up, resurrected us to new life. And now we have this aroma that is smells like death to some. But to others who are being saved, we are a life-giving perfume. To some people, we smell like a dead old beaver. To other people, we smell like Chanel number five. So what's your fragrance? What's your aroma? What, what aroma are you giving off? Is it rising up to God? Are those who are in your life, are they seeking God and finding your aroma to be life-giving? It's meant to be a perfume that has the odor of life to it. And it's all because of the radical removal of your old self in Christ. You now have the opportunity to bring the fragrance of Jesus to those who are dead but looking for life. So, here's the prayer I would pray for all of us. So as I pray it, you pray it. Our Father, I love you deeply. And I want to know Christ and experience the mighty power that raised him from the dead. I want to suffer with him, sharing in his death, so that no way other 
so that in one way or another I will experience the resurrection from the dead. Not just when I pass from this life to the next, but right now, right here, every day, to live a fragrant life for you, Jesus. To find passion in this new life. To find joy in living. To be contagious for you because of the death of my old self and being buried and resurrected with you. Thank you for bringing me from death to life that I might be ready now to live as you really want me to live. In Jesus' name, amen.